When we began this series, the Psalms of Ascent, we talked, the first few messages, we, we talked about St. Augustine, who had said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. And that is, I would say, the best quote that fits the Psalms of Ascent. Every pilgrim who takes the journey up the road to Jerusalem is restless, and they're looking to find their rest in God. But no psalm says that more than this psalm. And I can relate to it because of how often I can feel like a restless dove. Remember when Noah was on the ark? They were in their quarantine, so to speak, for many more days than we have been. And they had worse guests than we have had. You can imagine what it's like with all the animals, but that's for your own imagination. Toward the end, he sent out the raven, and the raven fluttered about and never came back because it found some death to land on and feast itself on. But then Noah sent out the dove. And it said that the dove went to and fro looking for rest, and it could find none. So it came back. That's how I often feel. I'm, I'm, my soul is just looking for a place to hold on to, latch on to, to be anchored to. And ultimately, I don't know where else to go, so I fall back on my comfort food or my habits of ease. And that this is where we find our psalmist as we read Psalm 132, it's like that dove looking for a place to land. So let's look at the first few verses to capture what it's saying. Psalm 132, verse 1. Remember, O Yahweh, in David's favor. Okay, so we don't know who wrote this psalm, but it's talking about David, okay? Remember, O Yahweh, in David's favor, all the hardship he endured. How he swore to Yahweh and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for Yahweh, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Do you see the restless dove? fluttering. David can't sleep. He can't find rest. And he won't until he finds a dwelling place for Yahweh. Now, you might be thinking, but God's everywhere. Well, in Israel, it was very symbolic that God's presence was manifested. It was, it was a symbol of his reign over his people in that Ark of the Covenant. And it was a box about yay big, and God would manifest. He often called it his throne on earth. The Ark of the Covenant was where he reigned on the earth. And when Israel, um, before Saul was king, Israel went to war against the Philistines. They brought the Ark out to say, we're going to win now. They lose. 
the Philistines capture the ark. They get bubonic plague and coronavirus in their cities. They send the, uh, seriously, not the corona, but they get, they get viruses and plagues. They send the ark back to Israel on a cart pulled by animals. And the Philistines are just like, just, let's just watch it. Let's not even be close to the thing. The thing zaps people dead. And then it lands in what the psalm is going to call the fields of J.R. This is 1 Samuel chapter 7. It goes into those fields, and it stays there for 20 years. In the meantime, King Saul becomes king of Israel. The ark sits there, untouched, unsought. Then David becomes king right after King Saul. David takes Jerusalem. The first thing he does as king, once the tribes unite around him, he then takes Jerusalem to be the capital of Israel. And then, that's 1 Samuel, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 5, he takes Jerusalem. 2 Samuel chapter 6, what's the first thing he does as king? Where is that ark? Let's bring it to Jerusalem. That's what this psalm is capturing David would not rest until God had his proper place in Israel's life, in the epicenter of everything. Where the king reigned is where Yahweh's ark needed to be. So David sought for it. So, I need this to happen, and I can't sleep until I get it done. Have you ever felt that way? Good. Okay, so then we can relate to the psalmist. This 13th step is called rest. Because while we're on our pilgrimage, we need to remember our destination is rest. Because when you are two steps from the top, oh my goodness, your calves are burning. The blisters are exploding. The shoes have been worn so thin, your tread is gone. You're out of snacks. You're out of water. You've soaked through even the sweat-proof Under Armour, X-Armour, whatever stuff you're wearing. And your sunscreen is out and you're getting all pink you need to remember what is waiting for you. So this psalm is aiming us toward Jerusalem and what is there? What is there? But as we're on the way, we ask this question of ourselves, will I ever find rest? Because that's what this pilgrim life feels like. It feels like one activity, one challenge, one hurdle after another, and we wonder, will I ever find rest? Is it ever going to stop? No. The coronavirus was not rest. Some of us stopped working. But as we're going to see, the Bible does not define rest as the cessation of labor. The Bible defines rest very differently. So you may not be going to work anymore, or work looks like your pajamas on your couch with Netflix on while you're working on your laptop. Whatever it is, that's not rest, because in our soul or in our mind, there's all kinds of worries, concerns, what's going on. When can I go to church again? Do I believe these news reports, or do I believe these things over here that I'm seeing on YouTube? What is your never you're the dove flitting about even though you're in a cage (laughs) will we ever find rest in life david wanted to know he wanted to find a resting place for god because david knew our resting place is in god's resting place so the psalm hearkens upon his bringing the ark of the covenant back up 
or bringing it up to Jerusalem. So um, let's continue on. We see in verse 6, Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. It is the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? We heard of the Ark in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. Um, which is believed to be, Fields of Jair is believed to be shorthand for uh, Kirith Jerim, which is where it says the ark rested in 1 Samuel 7 for 20 years. Kirith Jerim is the actual name of the place, but the poem shortens it to Jr. So instead of Kirith Jerim, it's just the Fields of Jr. So look, yeah, we heard of it. It's been sitting there for 20 years. It's got some dust on it and whatnot. Verse 7, then there's this call to worship. Let us go. To his dwelling place. David wants to give the ark a dwelling place. Let's follow the ark to that dwelling place. Let's go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Yahweh, and go to your resting place. So you can imagine David bringing the ark to Jerusalem. There's singing and there's celebration, and David's praying, God, show up where we bring the ark. So arise, O Yahweh, go to your resting place and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. By the way, you probably know this by now, but when you read anointed one, the Hebrew there is Mashiach, or we usually say Messiah. So um, you, you obviously, then you're just like thinking, oh, Jesus, Jesus. Well, yes, David is the Messiah for his time, but then God promises something, and the Messiah will come through his line. Um, you'll, see that, you'll see that in a moment. So verse 11. So now Yahweh swore to David a sure oath, from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. So David, you're going to have kids, and those he has kids. If one of those kids is going to sit on your throne. That's always a king's desire that my lineage continues. Verse 12, if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. David, you will never lack a son to sit on your throne if you follow my commands. That's the promise. 1 Samuel chapter 5, the ark, sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 5, David takes Jerusalem. 2 Samuel chapter 6, first act as king, bring the ark to Jerusalem. 2 Samuel chapter 7, after the ark gets there, God shows up to David and says these words in this psalm. I will always have one of your sons sitting on the throne. Verse 13. For Yahweh has chosen Zion. That's the mountain of Jerusalem. He has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. David brings the ark up. Does God approve? Yes, God says, I approve. I am desiring Zion for my dwelling place. Then he says, this is my resting place forever. 
Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. And her saints will shout for joy. There, Zion, I will make a horn to sprout for David. Now, a horn is not the trumpet. Imagine the thing that comes out of the head of a bull. It's meant to signal strength. The strength of the bull is in his horns, right? The strength of a stag is in the rack upon his head. That is what he's saying. I will make the strength of David to sprout. I have prepared a lamp for my Messiah. His enemies I will clothe the shame, but on him his crown will shine. It will glisten. It will shimmer. It'll be beautiful. All right. Will we ever rest? Looks like God finds rest. Will we ever find rest? Did David ever find rest? I won't sleep until the ark of God has a dwelling place. In our search for rest, we sometimes go about things with good intentions but not the right method. David wanted to bring the ark to Jerusalem. He wanted to rest. I want to rest in the resting place of God. So he brings everyone together. They shout. They sing. In fact, if you want to go to 1 Samuel, um, I keep saying that, 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 6, you'll see how this ends up. (laughs) 2 Samuel 6. Find Joshua, Judges, Numbers. No, that's not how it goes. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel. So in Second Samuel 6, verse 5, David and all the house of Israel were making merry before Yahweh with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. It was Richard, Sandy, and Wayne, right? Just kind of leading the way. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah, he's, he put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Okay, we learn all kinds of things all of a sudden in that one sentence. First, we learn that the ark is on a cart. Apparently, Israel, when they received the ark from the Philistines on a cart, said, good idea. We don't have to carry it. Let's put it on a cart. So it's on a cart. Second, someone is driving the cart. It's, his name is Uzzah. Then, the oxen pulling the cart in which the throne of God is sitting. The oxen stumbles, and Uzzah thinks, oh no, oh no, save the ark. So he instinctively reaches back, grabs the ark so it doesn't fall off. Well, if he had been reading Leviticus, he knew you don't do that. So Uzzah took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. Verse 7, and the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. Well, if I had to die anywhere, I guess that's the best place, but... 
And David was angry because Yahweh had burst forth against Uzzah. I mean, let's just say it. David was also angry because God ruined his party. David had grand designs. This was going to look awesome. I'm finally going to find my rest. God, why? And what David's going to learn is, look, I don't play by your rules. So David was angry, um, verse 9, and David was afraid of Yahweh that day. And he said, how can the ark of Yahweh come to me? Now look at that question and think of our psalm. How can the ark of Yahweh come to me? And here he's saying, look, I will not enter my house or go into my bed or give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for Yahweh. And now this happens. He goes, yeah, I thought I was finally going to be able to end my oath. And now he's like, no, now what do I do? This is a truly restless soul where you're striving to find the rest. And you're like, I know it's in God. So God, give me rest. And then God doesn't. And then we get mad at God. And it's like God's fault. Here's the truth we learn, friends. It's not all on God. Yes, it has to come from him. But sometimes God's trying to give us what we're looking for and what we're asking for. But we are going about receiving it the wrong way. So, we're going to see that. David leaves the ark. He leaves it at the house of Obed. He's only mentioned because he's very lucky. Because the ark is there for three months. Three months later, someone says, Obed Edom the Gittite, he's thriving right now. He cannot cut his lawn fast enough. He cannot pick apples off his orchard fast enough. He's giving them away to his neighbors. And he's saying, please take the ark from my house. I can't contain it. He's being blessed beyond compare. So, David was told this, and David said, well, let's, let's try this again. This time, David reads Leviticus and learns that the ark had to be carried by priests and with poles inserted in little rings that were on the ark for the purpose of lifting it. Four priests on each corner, lifting it together and marching it forward. No more cart with stinky oxen pulling it that they can stumble and, oh no, God's going to fall off the wagon. None of that. That's not the kind of deity we have. I can't believe that just came to my head, but it did. <laughs> um, but, but that's not the kind of God we're dealing with. He can't fall off. He's going to be carried and uplifted by those who have been appointed to worship him and show him to the people. So David this time has the Levites pick it up. And every six steps, they sacrifice an ox. Take that oxen. Now you stumble. <laughs> and the ark gets there safely. What do we learn? We learn that David had to do this God's way. God isn't a thing that we can just reach out and grab. God isn't a genie. Uh, how do I use one of my three wishes? Give me rest! And he gives us rest. It's not how it works. God works in relationship with his people. He works in relationship with his people. Okay, please, please hear that. He works in relation. A relationship is not a one-way street. A relationship is two ways. So there's communication on both ends. 
There's one party doing something and the other doing something. Now look at this psalm. You may have noticed, you may not have noticed, or you might have sort of noticed, but didn't have the time because I was talking and you didn't have the time to actually observe it. But this psalm is a parallel. Verses 1 through 10 are mirrored in verse 11 through 18 with subtle differences. Notice in verse 1, it's actually verse 2. It says this, David swore to Yahweh. What did he swear? You already know. I will not enter in my house or get into my bed, so forth. David swore. Now look at part two of the psalm in verse 11. Yahweh swore to David. You see what's happening? David made a promise to God. Now God is making a promise to David. And he promises, one of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. They'll be there forever as long as they obey me. Okay, that's our first parallel. Second parallel is the use of the word dwelling place and resting place. That's more than one word. I'm aware of that. Verse 7, let us go to his dwelling place. Now, verse 8, arise, O Yahweh, go to your resting place. So dwelling place, resting place, as in Hebrew poetry, that that's means they're synonymous, okay? His dwelling place is his resting place. Now, jump down to the second half. Look at verse 13. For Yahweh has chosen Zion, he has desired it for his dwelling place. Then Yahweh says, this is my resting place. Okay. Third, so we see both of them are making promises to each other. Both of them are seeking a dwelling resting place. Third, um, both of them talk about the priests. Look at verse 9. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. Now, verse 16. Her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. Right now, we're, are we thinking like, how do we not see this parallel? It's like so obvious, isn't it? It took, don't worry, it took me like till Thursday to see it. So it, you, you guys are doing it much faster than me. Um, then verse 10. So the fourth, and finally, the Messiah is mentioned in both sides. Verse 10. For the sake of your servant, David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one, Messiah. Now verse 17. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed Messiah. All right. So what do we have going on here? Verse 1 through 10. We have David's perspective of this desire for rest. I will promise this. David tries to call Israel together. Let's go. Let's go. Arise, O Lord, and come to your resting place. Does it work? First attempt fails. Second attempt works. Because then he learns to listen to God. God is saying the same thing, but see, David can't say, this is what I want to do, God, and I'm going to do it. And he just plow forward, bless what I'm doing. Instead, David says, this is my desire, but God, what is your direction? So now God, in the psalm we have now, this is God's perspective of everything. God's like, David, you are making these promises, but come on, really, I'm the one who makes promises. Your desire, I will meet. Okay? So now God is talking to him. 
And God, in, verse, um, in the first half, David's like, come on, God, come to your resting place. But then God names the resting place. It isn't anywhere. It's Zion. It's Jerusalem right there. And God says, I have accepted it. I desire it. I've chosen it. So God is bringing it all to fulfillment. Um, and so forth. So we see the two working together. A relationship is happening in this psalm. David commits to God, but that only matters if God commits to David. And said the other way, God commits to David, but that only works if David commits to God. Relationship with God as a two-way street is where we find rest for our restless souls. We cannot just say, well, God is my rest. I find rest in God. What does that mean? I mean, millions, billions of people believe in a God of some sort. God is not just something we deposit our worries into. He's someone who meets our worries and offers us, and we receive, and we do what he's asking. He's showing us how to find rest, not just give me rest. No, if you want rest, have you noticed my resting place? Why don't you come visit? You see, and that's what the Psalms of Ascent are now doing. They're taking this history of David and rest, and they're saying, all right, pilgrims, let's go. The resting place of God. If you're a restless soul, you're on the right path. Are you wondering, will I ever rest? The psalmist is saying, you will. You will. Wait till you get there. Rest. However, we now need to see what rest actually looks like. There's one more very important thing that's going on here. David's the king when he's doing all this. Please don't miss this. He's the king. David rules Israel on the earth. As far as earth and Israel is concerned, the king is David. As far as heaven is concerned, Yahweh is the king. Now, Israel had this complicated relationship with their kings because we know Yahweh's our king, but we want a king like all the other nations, right? Remember that? And it's just like, God's like, but I'm your king. And like, but, but, and God's like, okay, okay. I get it, I get it. Humans need a human representative of my kingship. So Yahweh says, I will permit it, but please understand you're going to have some pretty bad kings. Saul was not very good. David At least his desires are good. So God honors that and says, David, I want your lineage to be my representatives. Their son, your sons and their sons will be what I'm calling the Messiah. And they will pinnacle, of course, in the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, who the New Testament goes to great lengths to clarify he is of the lineage of David. So we don't miss it that he is the promised Messiah. Yahweh is king of heaven. David is king of earth. What David is doing is what Saul should have done and what all of the other kings after David should have done. By bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, where David's throne is, he's bringing God's throne there. What is that saying to Israel and to the whole world? David's saying... My throne and God's throne merge. Mm -hmm. 
they merge. And this is where I find rest. And this is where God finds rest. It is in the convergence of heaven and earth, that is where rest occurs. Okay, if you're not quite on the, if you're kind of on the fence about that, you need to see Genesis. And you're familiar with it, so if you don't have your Bible or you don't want to flip through pages, you're very familiar with this. You read in Genesis chapter 2, this. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Okay. Here's, here's where Psalm 132 helps us see what's going on in Genesis 2. If you are like me, for most of your life, you read the seventh day of Genesis and said, God rested. How funny. I didn't know he could get tired. And I remember in my youth, that was always the question. But you know how you are, especially the boys, always like to be the sarcastic ones. Oh, Sunday school teacher, how come God rested if he doesn't get tired? And they would hem and haw and say, it's a model for us to follow. Fair enough, but not the full story. So why does God rest? Here's how we think of rest. We think of rest as, oh, work, 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 work. Finally, I get to stop working. I get to be lazy. I get to, I get to repose, recline. Uh, but rest in a biblical sense is sort of like that, but further. In Genesis 1.32, what we're seeing is God's dwelling place is his what? Resting place. So for God to rest somewhere is for him to dwell somewhere. What you see happening in Genesis 2 is that in chapter 1, he's creating the earth. And it's all good and dandy. But in chapter 2 and on day 7, he is entering the earth. He's dwelling on the earth. He's making, like he said about Zion, I'm choosing it. This is my resting place. He's choosing the earth as his resting place. The God who created the entire universe has chosen, in the famous words, um, the pale blue dot to rest in. It matters. He has, he has chosen this as his resting place. So here we go. Heaven and earth, when God's done with creation, heaven and earth are not two separate things. Heaven and earth are united because God, heaven, earth, humanity, are intersecting. They're converging. And the place is called Eden. Isn't it interesting that it isn't until after the seventh day when God rests, he merges with heaven and earth, that then we get the explanation of Eden in chapter 2. 
Rest is the convergence of heaven and earth. But, <laughs> sadly, this didn't last very long, because in chapter 3, the convergence went through a divergence. It went through a divorce. It went through a separation. Because we, we said, God, you can have your throne, but have it in heaven. We will take earth. We like it very much. That's what the serpent was offering them, right? You will be like God. Oh, we can. Okay, cool. Shove him out. And what happens when they choose to separate the rest of heaven and earth? They lose their rest of Eden. Now they're out of Eden. And they've been out of Eden ever since. David is one of the few people who recognizes where the restless yearning of his heart is directed. He recognizes that Eden was special because there heaven and earth were united. I want Zion. I want Jerusalem. I want wherever my throne is to be where God's throne is because in his resting place is my resting place. I want to see the convergence of heaven and earth once again. And God says, yes, that's the man after my own heart. I will make your city my resting place. I will make it my resting place. So what we see is Zion, Jerusalem, becomes, through David's reign, because he's unified with God, Zion becomes Eden. Of all the places in the cursed earth, the fallen world, there's one little speck where an Edenic rest can be found. And it was there in David's Jerusalem. Now, it gets better because we have this complicated theology. It's very fun when I do my Jesus class for the, high, for the Christian high school here. Um, when you talk about the nature of Jesus and everyone's trying to wrap their minds around, he's 100% God, 100% man. I know, right? But here's, here's what we need to see. You, you may never, like, solve that, but here's what you need to see. It, what, you need to see what it means. This is what it means. God is, Jesus, I'm sorry, is um, 100% from God. He's 100% heaven. And he's also 100% on earth. What does that mean? It means in Jesus, you have this intersection. In him, you have this convergence between God's realm, God's kingdom, God's throne, heaven, and man's kingdom, man's realm, earth. They are united again in Jesus. See, in David's Jerusalem, it was temporary. His sons ended up disobeying, and the whole thing separated. The Babylonians destroyed the temple, and then Israel's finally like, oh, we should have had our act together, and then they try to get their act, well, it's another story, but they, they, they started getting serious with God again. Um, yeah, it kind of fell apart. Jesus then comes to put back on the tracks the train that was derailed by David's offspring. Jesus is the offspring who who finally did everything God commanded. And so in Jesus, look, there's no more Ark of the Covenant. The temple that Herod built, whatever that is, Jesus, in fact, judged it by cleansing it, by, by throwing tables around in there. He's like, this doesn't matter, because I am what David once thought this represented. I am now the new convergence of heaven and earth. In other words, I am the Ark of the Covenant. 
I am the temple. I am the resting place. I am the true Jerusalem, the true Mount Zion. I am the Garden of Eden. And if you want to find rest for your souls, if you want to find a landing place for your restless dove, this is where it occurs. I love it because God is not actually robbing us anything. We often think, if God is king, I must be a little peon as a slave. I'm, I'm probably just sweeping the bathrooms for him. Not a bad place, okay? At least you're there. But God has more for us in store. We have to somehow reconcile the concept that Jesus, the Son of God, um, and David and his sons are this Messiah lineage, and Jesus, one of these sons, is a son of God, and it says in the Bible that if we follow him, he'll make us into sons of God, which makes us sort of like, what? Princes? Princesses? We're not just peons. We're not just slaves. And then Revelation says, we will reign on earth with him. It's so great. Revelation chapter 5. It's totally worth. Um, Revelation 5, there, there's the lamb up in Jesus. He's pictured as a lamb in Revelation because Jesus is not like the beast. He's the opposite, right? So he's pictured as a lamb who gets killed rather than does the killing. Um, so he's in heaven as a lamb that has been slain. And he's the one that takes a scroll off the throne of God. And the scroll is never defined, but it's, it seems clearly to be a title deed for the earth. And Jesus takes it. And what does all heaven sing? All heaven sings in Revelation 5, 9. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. New King James says us. Makes it much more direct for you. From every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them, us, a kingdom of priests. What are you? A kingdom of... Yeah, priests is not like the little sweeper of the bathroom. Your kingdom of priests to our God, and they, we, shall reign on the earth. Whoa, that is so cool. Now, here's what's cool about this, okay? We are called sons and daughters of God. Jesus is called the Son of God, and that was made very clear um, um, all over the New Testament, but in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, you have this really interesting moment. I know I'm flipping around, so it's better to listen if you can't keep up, because otherwise you'll get lost. Um, In Hebrews 1, verse 5, the author says, For to which of the angels did God ever say this? In other words, Jesus is superior to everything, because he didn't say this to the angels, but he said this to Jesus. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, now this is coming straight from the promise of David. I will be a father, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. What's he saying? David, one of your sons will sit on your throne. And what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the more full promise, is he says, David, I will be as a father to that son. So that king will be like a son of God. 
And then Jesus is called very clearly, look, he's called the son of God because he is the Messiah. Um, and then in Matthew chapter 3, this is the last one, don't worry. In Matthew chapter 3, you get this. 3 verse 17, behold, this is at Jesus' baptism. A voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I forgot the verse before it because this is really good. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. The convergence of heaven and earth is happening right there for all to see, and now there's rest. This is my resting place, God is saying. And then he says, this is my son. So, just like the sons of David will be considered my son, this is my son, because he's the ultimate son of David, and all who follow him will also become sons and daughters of God. So we, like Revelation says, will reign with him because we are taking up this royal identity with him. We become part of this lineage of David when we sign on in faith to follow Jesus. This is wonderful news that we get to have, like David, our throne, God's throne, converging together and finding rest there. But we are not to say, my throne versus God's throne. It's God and us working together in relationship. He doesn't strip us of any role or of any importance. He simply says, I want you to serve me in this way. Have a throne, have a crown, have authority, as he told Adam and Eve. Have dominion over the face of the earth cultivate it and protect it and guard it. That's the convergence of heaven and earth. That's what's happening in Christ, and that's what Christ gives to us when the Holy Spirit comes into us. There's a little mini tiny garden of Eden blooming within us if we will allow it to happen. My earth converging with God's heaven through the Holy Spirit in me, and it's no coincidence then that Paul says the fruits of the Spirit in us the fruits of the Spirit in us is love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. But what does he call it? The fruit. The Spirit in us bears fruit because we are now the resting place. We are the Garden of Eden restored because of Christ and in Christ. What we're looking for, friends, as a resting place, rest for our soul, looks like converging with God's throne. Him having a purpose for us and us giving everything to him. The convergence of heaven and earth, as we saw in Christ, is happening in us because we are little Christs. All right. So, I want to know, will you find rest for your restless, fluttering, flittering heart? Rest isn't just, God, you do it all. That's actually you saying, I'm going to control my life, but you, little heaven, rain down some blessings on me. The biblical picture of rest is the convergence of heaven and earth. It's the convergence of Brandon and Christ. And somewhere in this relationship, we reign in life, as Paul says in Romans 5. Somewhere here, we reign in life. That's what we want. 
And that's what we learn as we make the pilgrimage and we get closer and we get closer to our home and our destiny. And the psalmist wants us to keep it in the mind because he says, look, you're going to be restless and you're going to get tired. And you say, will I ever find rest? He's like, yes, you will. It's here. And so keep going. Yahweh's your king. Keep going because he will include you in his kingdom and he will work with us and in us and among us. And so I want us to leave seeking this kind of rest because we don't need Christianity that's sort of like on the sidelines rooting for David to bring the ark up to Jerusalem. We need a Christianity that recognizes our call to be present with God in all of the affairs he's doing in his kingdom. He's commissioned us. You remember it's called the Great Commission? Now go therefore, because he wants us to have the authority of the king. Jesus told his disciples, all authority on heaven and earth has been granted to me. I'm the king of heaven and earth converged. I am the one-of-a-kind king. Caesar rules the earth. Forget about him. I rule heaven and earth. So take that. All authority has been given to me. I now therefore send you. Go. We need a Christianity. We need pilgrims who are climbing this path because we need Christians who are climbing this path who take seriously that we are commissioned emissaries. We are commissioned princes and princesses, sons and daughters of the king from the lineage of David that will never perish We need our lives converged with his life. And then we will find an active, a dynamic, a pulsating activity in our Christian life to the world around us. It won't just be, yeah, I go to church. I mean, we've been saying that lately because suddenly the location of church suddenly mattered. I remember how much we always said, the location and building doesn't matter. We are the church. And I'm so grateful for that because that's true. We need to understand we are the church. We're the temple of God. We are the convergence of heaven and earth. It's not this literal carpet. That's the convergence of heaven and earth. It's you guys. It's me because of the spirit of God in us. However, however, aren't we thankful that there is a place? Yeah, okay, that rant put aside. Um, what was I saying? We don't just need Christians to say, I go to church. We need Christians to say, I am. I am a kingdom of priests. I am commissioned. I have royal blood in me because in my life, the thrones have converged. We don't need to keep separating. I'm saying, God does that and I do this. No, we do it all together. There's a dialogue in this psalm. So, You commit to him, he commits to you. He commits to you, you commit to him. That's where rest rests. Our resting place is in his resting place. Let's pray. I ask, Father, that you would...